Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Matthew Skelton at Conflux, where he is the head of consulting and specializes in continuous delivery, operability, and organization dynamics for modern software systems. He's also the co-author of Team Topologies, Organizing Business and Technology Teams for Fast Flow. Welcome to the show, Matthew. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, of course. Really excited to have this conversation because teams and cohesion and Conway's Law are, have been favorite topics of mine for a while and been a fan of the book. So before we dig in, let's hear a little bit about how you got your start in helping organizational dynamics. Great. It's a good question. So a long time ago now, in fact, it's, it's more than 10 years ago now. I was working for a company in London, and they were at the beginning of their journey moving to the cloud, so out of traditional data centers and into AWS. And they're doing quite a lot of revenues. It, we, we, it was relatively small. I think it was about 250 people in that organization, but you know, big enough to show some interesting patterns and things. And at the time, uh, there were some interesting sort of relationship dynamics, whatever, between the people principally building software and the people principally building the infrastructure and running the software in production had a fairly traditional split at the time. So you might call it dev and ops. And obviously looking back historically, the whole DevOps movement was there to try and fix the problems that were arose, that had arisen in the previous years because of this big split between dev and ops. And so that led me to start thinking, looking at different possibilities for ways in which the development and the operation teams could work effectively together started drawing out some patterns using Venn diagrams, so just overlapping circles, thinking, okay, at the moment, this this circle, this group of people over here is very separate from this other group. What happens if we were to work together on a small number of things? So then you have like an overlapping circle, if you like. What happens if we had another team involved that was doing something different, and so on? So using these Venn diagrams of overlapping responsibility to think about more effective ways of working together. And from that, exploration came what became known as DevOps topologies. So I wrote a blog post on my personal blog, matthewskelton.net. You can still find it. It gets tons of traffic every month still, even 10 years later, where I'm asking the question, um, how, how can we think about effective working together in, in, a, in a DevOps context? We then took these patterns and turned them into a website, devopstopologies.com, which then sort of became the sort of standard way for organizations around the world to think about team effectiveness or team relationships, I guess, in a DevOps context, what was called DevOps then. Now the word DevOps means something different, but back then it meant ways in which development and operations can work together for, for more effective software delivery. 
So those DevOps topologies patterns were used by Netflix, they're used by Condé Nast International, they're used by big consultancies like Accenture, and so on and so on. And um, it really helped people to think things through because it provided a kind of set of different anti-patterns and patterns, good, uh, bad things and good things. Uh, it's not prescriptive, it's just some suggestions, basically. And it's, it's Creative Commons, open source, so people are contributing and trying things out and blah, blah, blah. Now, so that then seemed to be quite useful for people. And it helped me and and Manuel Paes, who, who became my co-author with, with, uh, on the Teacher Bodies book, helped us to think through what's behind these kind of dynamics. So kind of the, the devil's apologies thing helps us to, th to, to think through a, a whole load of other different dimensions which eventually coalesced into the Team Topologies book. So that's that's how Team Topologies sort of came about, if you like. It, it came through that DevOps Topologies set of patterns and originally back through, through to work that um, I was doing. Uh, and later on, I, Manuel was working with us on, on a bunch of things too. It, it, came, it came really from our work with real organizations and really thinking this through. But yeah, that kind of those DevOps Topologies patterns were shaped our thinking and shaped the thinking of lots of other organizations as well that eventually we ended up with the team topology stuff although it's it's kind of quite a lot different from from that early work it's really fascinating to me you know the lineage of devops and how a lot of focus on automation and repeatability and even development having an understanding of kind of what's flowing into production and how that works and you know making those things programmatic right and yet your work is focused on people and cohesion, which is a, another component of the problem. But it seems like a lot of the, the rhetoric and a lot of the things you read out there is really focused on the technology and the systems and how to automate things. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It's a good call. Uh, it's, it's a really good point. Yes, the, the, there's, there has been a, a, a disappointing tendency, I guess, over the last, last few years for for people to zoom in on to the technology parts. And, and with Team Topologies book, we were determined to take a socio-technical approach to it. This is the, I mean, there's a lot to socio-technical systems and, and thinking things, but we're looking, the short version is, we're expecting to look at the ways in which people and technology interact, and you can't separate one from the other. That there is, there is an interdependency, there, there is there's a kind of cross-pollination, if you like, there's an interrelationship between the two. And and starting from that viewpoint of that that, that we're that we have a socio-technical context here or problem, is vitally important, so that we don't just zoom in on 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 software or or, or hardware or cloud technology. We're thinking about how this relates to, to human beings. There's there's a there's a wider system uh, that, that we we need to shape and if you like build or nurture. And the organisations that accept that are increasingly more successful. The organizations that just think it's about buying technology, you know, then they're not, then they're finding it difficult. And there's a reason for that because the, the nature of the problem is not just technological. You know, that reminds me of a point you made in the book around fracture planes as well. And that being um, a place to look as far as designing teams and, and even thinking about change and software or systems. And I think if people are looking purely from a technical standpoint, it limits the fracture planes they may not notice versus the planes that exist because of people. I think there was an example you had in the book around the speed of change, like how often the systems are changing and creates a plane of an opportunity. No, indeed. I mean, to some extent, looking to split responsibility purely around technical boundaries is is the last place we should start. I mean, the, the, we, we'd normally recommend that as, you know, it's definitely one of the fracture planes that we talk about, but it, it's, it's, 
it's certainly not the place to start. The the place to start in uh, when you're looking for boundaries for effective flow is what are the natural flows of change in the organization? What does what does the organization try to do on a, on a, on an ongoing basis every day? Is it changes to user journeys? Is it updates to a particular kind of service? Is it onboarding new users? Look at what that organization needs to do naturally, and have, start to have conversations about what what um, is driving those kind of flows of change. We start to talk about language. We start to use techniques like domain-driven design and similar techniques, Techniques, some of the techniques that we've uh, kind of uh, devised and, and, and evolved things like uh, independent service heuristics seem to really help. Get those conversations going, get people to really talk through and, and increase their awareness of what those natural flows of change are inside the organization and then start to have conversations about, well, what does it mean to actually align teams and, and whole groups of people to those flows of change? Because because the funding might need to change. The way in which we conceive of teams might need to change. The implications for team ownership might change. Teams might be better able to own things if we adjust the boundaries or might find it really tricky because the cognitive load is too high. So suddenly we're talking about stuff which is not just technology. It's about making a viable organization effectively. We're thinking about viability, the ongoing ownership of different streams of change on an ongoing basis. That's a healthy conversation to have for any organization, to be honest. You know, that makes me think of a point you made in the book around, you know, when organizations map to existing architectures, or if we're thinking about, you know, beyond software, maybe existing systems or existing ways of doing things, if they're mapping too closely to that, they might have this artificial sense of flow, but it's not a fast flow. Yeah, it could be. I mean... There are there are some contexts where fast flow is not needed. In fact, I actually pulled together something on GitHub recently for exactly this reason. What did I call it? Uh, I called it slow flow. Interesting. There's a there's a repository there's a GitHub repository there's a repository on my, on my GitHub. If you search for slow flow, you'll find it. And this is some context where fast flow might not be suitable. So research and development, possibly R and D. Things like policy formation, you don't want to be going too quickly on that. Artistic creativity, possibly. Things like palliative care, so end-of-life care mm. for human beings in medical context. But actually, the number of cases where fast flow is not needed is relatively small. And, and in most organizations, what we're seeing, sort of business context, certainly, is they we need to get things done quickly in a sustainable way. And how do we do that without without creating a kind of big mess of software. But yeah, if, 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 the, if, the, if the stuff we're doing is, is software enriched, the service we're providing is software enriched. So the entire service might encompass other things. It might encompass some physical aspects. You might have to go to, to, to a registry office or, or something to, to apply for something. You might get something delivered at the end of the day. The, the end-to-end service is bigger than just the software, but software is enriching it somehow. It's making it more capable or, or whatnot. If the software in the mix there, we have to think uh, about the things like cognitive load of the teams that are, are using and building these systems and running the systems. We have to think about dependencies. If we're going quickly, we cannot have in-flight dependencies on other teams because that's going to slow things down. So that means we have to shift responsibility boundaries, and that means that cognitive load is being shifted across the organization. And you know, we, we need to think about kind of technologies we're using and when and where when to retire some things, when to retire other things. In the context of going rapidly, of this fast flow of change, the decision criteria that we need to be using inside an organization 
look actually quite different from the decision criteria they might have used 15, 20 years ago when many of the modern ex or the current execs were learning their trade, if you like, or were at business school or, or rising through the ranks, whatever. And so modern principles fast flow things like we allow some duplication. We, uh, we're not looking to optimize down the cost of licenses. We're happy for there to be some duplicate licenses and things like this for, for software that consuming. Bunch of these things like this. Uh, we don't have a single central database. Things like this seem crazy ideas to people who grew up with, uh, with, with a different set of uh, kind of constraints, like when technology was really expensive, when licenses were really expensive, when things took a long time to, to get into production for software. All of those things kind of made sense. We're in a different world now with, with, with cloud-type systems. And with all the automation that you mentioned before, whether it's come through the, the last 10, 15 years through, through DevOps and things, we can take different decisions. We can optimize for different things. And, and if we're optimizing for fast flow, we need to take a, set of, a different set of decisions along with it or different set of decision criteria to help us choose what to do and to look for when things are healthy or unhealthy. Uh, and it's quite unfamiliar for lots of people. Lots of people find it kind of weird because it is weird compared to compared to the slow situation from before. So people need some help with it effectively to, to get to grips with this new way of thinking. Absolutely. It also makes what you're saying makes me think a little bit about the self-similar teams pieces, which on the surface to some might seem redundant or disorganized. But the I think the trade-off that you get from the autonomy of being able to make decisions and take action can be pretty liberating. Yeah. The the the, the traditional command and control thing that came out of um, Taylorism from the 1920s or whenever it was, I mean, it probably didn't even work very well then for factories, where, where you, you had management separate from the workers and all this sort of stuff. There's a lot of politics and, and class-based stuff going on there. You know, if you're in a if you're in a physical factory, it's probably quite a good thing for workers to notice when when something that's being produced is not being produced accurately, rather than just allowing the machines to run and and the managers have told them to to produce 10 million widgets in in a week. If the workers notice something, it would actually be more effective for them to actually be able to. Like we see with Toyota, for example, pull the Andon cord and say something's wrong here. But uh, but but certainly in the case of knowledge work uh, and software as a form of knowledge work, because ultimately software is just, if you think about modern business software, modern business software is purely the encoding of organizational intent. That is all it is. Yes, when you're working with some, some firmware and hardware devices, you are getting the sensor data and pushing it into RAM and storing on disk and there's a, it feels a bit more techy. When we're working at this kind of uh, this kind of um, in this in the context of most most software is written for for large organisations, it's about encoding intent. It's knowledge work. We need to think about the 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 the, the words and the meaning and the, and the concepts behind what we're doing. In this kind of context here, we need to have localized autonomy, localized awareness. We need to use the eyes and ears and senses of everyone who's involved to give us additional context. We need to turn the organization into something like a sense-making or sensing organization that can mm. actually, that has a huge degree of uh, situational awareness, both f for, the, for the, what's happening inside the organization and what's happening outside. If you think about all the stuff that's changing now, we've got, uh, we've got Russia invading Ukraine, destabilization in lots of other regions. We've got uh, oil and gas prices causing havoc. 
we've got uh, climate change, a whole bunch of geopolitical stuff in the UK. This was Brexit, and but we've now uh, there's there's additional kind of uh, uh, disruption and things with, with with other trade and so on. All of the stuff is actually connected, and it's not going to get any better in the foreseeable future. It's going to get, if you like, more destabilizing. We've had COVID. All of these things mean that organizations need to be able to adapt and respond rapidly, particularly to the external changes. Suddenly, you know, one day we've got a trade deal, next day we've not. One day the, the one currency was worth twice another currency, the next day it's completely devalued. And, that, and we need to be able to respond to this stuff. We're in a period of, of extreme change. And to be able to respond in these contexts, uh, we need to be able to rely on the, on, on the, on the senses of people who are in the organization, in individuals and in teams particularly. So we need to provide ways in which teams have a language, a grammar, a, a vocabulary, if you like, for helping them to sense what's going on and helping them to communicate to other people in the organization about what's going on. This idea of, team, of, a, of a shared language is something that lots of people have said if they found value about team, valuable about team topologies. Excuse me, a shared language for the types of team, different purpose, different focus, but also the shared language for the three team interaction modes, collaboration, access of service, and, and facilitating. And that, that shared language just helps, seems to help teams and organizations to have a much more structured and useful conversation, which, which is, is really great to hear. It's, it's, it's what we, it's what we you know, had hopes for by, by putting that stuff together. So it's, it's great to hear that's, that's helping. That's really great. And, you know, I wanted to come back to something we talked in the pre-show chat about, which was how, you know, a lot of the work you've done came out of software systems and certainly Conway's law plays a big role in some of the foundational pieces of kind of what y'all built. And that's, you know, talking about software architectures, systems that are built. And yeah, it's clear that this stuff applies in lots of other situations, lots of other types of companies. And I recall that you were saying that you've seen healthcare organizations and trauma teams be really successful with this stuff. This is amazing, right? So in um, over the last kind of last year or so, I've seen several, several people, particularly in the UK. So in the UK, we have a national health service, the NHS. And so the vast majority of, of medical care in the UK is, is provided through that. And so there's an amazing ability to learn practices across lots of different hospitals and, and parts, parts, of the, uh, parts of the country uh, and sharing data and so on and so on. And it's really helpful for finding, uh, making progress really quickly. Anyhow, we've had people who are literally their doctors or their surgeons or their, their, their head of clinical practice or the head of this uh, entire department or what have you, or entire uh, region, health region saying, coming on Twitter or LinkedIn saying, hey, yep, we've been using team topologies for our, in a clinical context, nothing to do with software. We might have a, a we might need to have a, t a team with mixed skills inside it. So, for example, if you've got someone who's got COVID and they're in a, in, in a say, a, a vehicle crash, like a car crash or something, and they've got some, like, trauma, you actually need a mixture of skills. You can't just have a surgeon. You need someone who understands COVID response and someone who understands uh, the, what's needed for surgery. It's a complicated situation. And so you need a mixed team of people in there. You're going to need an anaesthetist, a surgeon, nurses, other people who understand how to make all this stuff work. They need to be able to have high trust. They need to be able to make decisions in real time without referring to someone else. They can't pass that patient on to someone else. They need to deal with the whole end-to-end -end trauma situation right then and there. 
And that might be ongoing for, let's say, 10, 24 hours, something like this, until they're stabilized. And in that context, in particular, cognitive load comes into play. Team cognitive load comes into play. Because that group of people, for, to have high trust, to be able for, them to, for them to be able to trust each other well enough to be able to op, uh, work well, you need to limit the number of people in that, in that team. It needs to be limited to about eight or nine people. And there's human, there's anthropological reason for that that go back millions of years. We can't really change much about it. So if you can only have about eight people in that team, there's a whole load of stuff that they will, they will not be able to keep in their heads. And so how do you deal with that? Well, from a team to body's perspective, we've got the idea of a platform. And a platform is not a piece of technology. A platform from a team to body's perspective is something which accelerates flow and ownership in a, what we call a streamlined team by reducing cognitive load. So a platform can be literally a checklist on a clipboard. If that checklist on a clipboard is helping that team to own that situation and, and achieve flow inside their context by reducing cognitive load because they can just refer to that checklist, that is acting kind of like a platform. It's a very different way of thinking about the word platform compared to IT, mm-hmm. but it works. It works in both cases. And we've got the idea, uh, concepts of enabling team, a group of experts who helps to uplift the skills in, inside these, these, these streamlined teams and so on. And it turns out that these, these concepts map really well, particularly into, into healthcare. It was really interesting to do a Google phrase search. I can't remember what it's called. The, the, you look back in history and see when phrases were being searched for. Turns out that the phrase team cognitive load started to be used around about 2018, which coincides with when I started to use that, basically when we were starting to write the book and so on. So we were writing the book during 2018. It got published in 2019. Team cognitive load. So the, the concept of cognitive load applied to a team starts to appear around that in, in IT. Interestingly, it starts to appear in clinical research at the same time. 2018, there's an explosion of academic papers and, and clinical trial and, and other things talking about team cognitive load in a clinical context. So independently, kind of in IT and in clinical and medical context, a need for thinking about team cognitive load came r- roughly about the same time, which is super interesting for me. Like, I don't know what's going on there, but there's this shared awareness in two completely different uh, disciplines that we need to think about team cognitive load. Uh, and it's probably because we need to bring different skills together and, and work together and those kind of stuff. But it was really interesting to see it. And so, yeah. Yeah, I was going to jump in there. The cross-functional nature of both of those situations and the contextual awareness that's required I think similar in maybe sports teams, right? Like trying to think of these types of organizations that have these similar constructs because you go into other industries or other types of companies and maybe that's not as prevalent, but certainly when you think about when someone's in an ER, you know, they're having to function pretty cohesively. I mean, during the pandemic response in the UK, there was a, there was a particular point in time where it was around booking vaccinations online and things like this when there was a need for medical professionals like like the, you know like like um, um the, the, you know, pr- professor of medicine at, at, a, at a hospital or something like this these people were getting involved directly with software teams because they needed to have that cross experience pollination or awareness to be able to build the vaccination booking system in the right way and they were using the team to bodies ideas to help them think about that think about like 
ways of talking about expertise? Should we put this expertise inside this team directly? Should we use the expertise as an enabling team? Should we actually build it as a platform? And that language helped them to actually deliver that vaccine response, which is absolutely amazing. Like I'm completely blown away by that, to, to hear that, um, that kind of story. Yeah, pretty amazing to see that happening. It makes me wonder with, you know, the book coming out in 2019 and the onslaught of coronavirus coming, you know, mainly in late 2019, 2020, I'm curious, like, did anything shift as far as your understanding or, or the types of questions and concerns you were getting from folks as they moved more into virtual and, and in work from home and maybe even just the stress of all the things that were happening? Yeah, it's a good question. So the short answer is yes, no, because <laughs> it, it turns out that a huge chunk of the the vast majority of the of the, the patterns and principles in teams bodies actually apply both in an in-person working context and hybrid and remote, because the the, the principles are sort of universal in the sense that we're we're applying really sound software engineering practices to teams. That's effectively what we're doing. So the software engineering practices that, all, that we already know work are things like clear APIs. So that's an application programming interface, a clear, a bit like a plug on a socket, a clear interface, like does it fit, does it work? Things like loose coupling, things like local autonomy. And, and these kind of principles have been known to work in the software context since the 1960s. Like, there's nothing new there. The software context has enabled us to iterate very rapidly and find the the fundamental principles that enable that enable things like fast flow and, and high scaling and things like this, and, and that they've been refined over decades, basically, particularly in the last twenty years since since since, since we've had uh, better software tools and, and eventually cloud and things. But there were specific things in the Teams Bodies book that are, are, are not relevant in in a remote work context. So we we had a there's a, a little diagram and a section on uh, how teams might sit together in a physical uh, office. Which is super cool, and it was—it's really great to see. But it's obviously not 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 relevant directly in a remote work context where everyone's at home. What we ended up doing is is pulling together a kind of appendix to the Team Deportees book. Uh, so some ideas and and, pr and principles for uh, what we've called remote team interactions. And so we we, we published this through through the same publisher as the Team Deportees book. It's called a Remote Team Interactions Workbook. It's quite short. It's sixty-five pages long. But it's, it kind of it sort of provides some suggestions and patterns and, 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 and ways of talking about working together in a remote context using the team project's ideas, but, but making it more, more specifically sort of focused on remote work. Uh, but we were, we were really pleased with it basically that pretty much everything was still relevant. It's just we had to call out or, or emphasize certain additional things in that workbook. I wanted to come back to the cognitive load point that you made and specifically something I was thinking about there, which is there's definitely a trend in the workplace where people are wanting to feel more connected. They're wanting to understand the higher purpose more, the big picture. And, you know, cognitive load is about constraining what they have to know about and think about uh, so that they, you know, can focus on the job at hand. How do you balance the need for kind of the bigger picture, more information, with the, also the need to constrain what people have to think about, so that they don't—they're not overwhelmed with all the things. It's a nice question, and actually, some people have—it's quite a subtle connection, but made that point before. 
because if you think about like historically with Taylorism, there'd be one person whose job was to fix this widget into this part of the machine and then pass it on to the next person and so on. And definitely when we were writing the, and that's a bad thing, let me make that clear. When we were writing the teacher project book, we wanted to make sure we were making, we're trying to help make work more humane, like more interesting for human beings. Now, part of the way it gets more interesting in a typical Teen Topologies inspired organization is that we've got end-to-end responsibility for a particular service. So we're focused on user needs or something that our customers need to have done. And we've got end-to-end responsibility, which means we're thinking about all the aspects of that service that go that come together to meet that to meet those needs. And so, because because we're working with a with people with a range of skills, we we don't just have a, a single set of skills to do that. We've got we typically need a multiple set of skills, so that in itself makes it kind of broader, makes it more interesting. We're learning new things. John Smart, who who wrote the book Sooner, Safer, Happier, also published by IT Revolution Press, talks about uh, skills being kind of comb shaped. So we hear about T-shaped skills. We hear about pie-shaped skills, like the, the the numeral pie. Also hear about comb-shaped skills, where you've got actually quite a few different specialisms, some of which may be stronger than others, sometimes called broken comb um, uh, kind of skill profile. Anyway, the point is we're expecting to support people in developing multiple different sets of skills. You might start out as a you know software engineer, but you'll develop skills in testing, you'll develop skills in user experience. And they won't be all as strong, but but that's the expectation that actually you'll learn from your colleagues and, and be able to support them doing their thing and, 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 and so on when you're working together with them in the same team. So that's one aspect of, of this kind of end-to-end responsibility that usually makes it more interesting. Like it, it, we, we do see a slightly bigger picture, but you're absolutely right. There's a need to limit the, the stuff that we're thinking about and some so some things we 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 want to sort of hide away and and to and to to um to make it so people don't have to think about that stuff one approach that some organizations have been doing for for, for a while but we can formalize it with team bodies is to think about rotations between different teams so you might be in a, team, a streamlined team focused on a particular customer journey. If it's if it's an online shop, it might be part of the checkout. If it's whatever, I don't know, if it's booking vaccinations, then it's about making sure that you've got your uh, validation code at the end so that you can actually turn up and you get scanned and you get your vaccination, whatever. Uh, you, you've got that end-to-end journey. But maybe you stay in there for the, you know, two years, three years, and and you actually fancy a different perspective. So then maybe it's an opportunity to move into, let's say, a platform where you're using the same skills, but you focus on a different type of technology. So you can in- increase your awareness and, and, and expertise from a different perspective. Or maybe you decide that you actually, you've developed some expertise and you want to try out working in an enabling team. So a group of experts with a particular focus, let's say user experience. You really like the user experience aspect. You decide that you're actually gonna be, you, you use your expertise in that area to work across multiple teams. So with team topology, with the team topologies, team types and team interaction modes, there are ways for people to explore different aspects of the bigger picture, if you like, but in a way which is not destructive, in a way which is actually very healthy for the organization. 
rather than just dipping in and out of things and, and having your fingers in lots of pies, which is one way to do it before. It, I'm sure you've, you, the listeners will probably think of people, maybe maybe themselves. I mean, I know I've done it in the past, where you just decide to kind of get involved in everything because it's kind of cool, interesting. There are way that there are more sort of structured and healthy ways that we can talk about doing that with with, with these teacher produce patterns, I guess. Yeah, the rotations is a fascinating concept, and you know, mostly you'll see it in organizations where it's like some executive program, or you know, maybe it's some graduate student like recently hired, and they take a batch of folks around and rotate them through different departments. I don't think enough companies offer that as a way for just any worker to stretch their wings and try new things. And and people complain about retention all the time. It's like, wow, you keep it a lot more interesting if it's almost like they're changing jobs in a way. I mean, the, the nice thing about Teen Body is the, the fact that it applies at multiple different levels, like I think you mentioned before, the kind of the, the way it applies in, in a fractal way, in a self-similar way across different parts of the organization is – so if you're going from like a customer, like an, if you've got external customers and you started working in a team that focus on external customers, well, the way the, the way in which you work inside that team is essentially identical to the way in which you would work if you're working inside a, a data platform. It's the same set of techniques. It's just your domain focus is slightly different or substantially different. But the the the, the way in which you talk about that work and interacting with other teams is essentially the same. So. You've got people from across the organization using the same working techniques, but then maybe changing their area of domain focus as as, as needed or as they want. So I think it's, it's quite powerful in that respect. It provides that kind of context. Historically, if you think about it, people certainly in IT on the software development side use a whole bunch of techniques called things like Agile and DevOps and blah, blah, blah. People in infrastructure or IT operations use a whole completely different set of principles, ITIL and whatnot. And they were basically mutually incompatible, but with approaches where, which are self-similar across all parts of this the, the organization, like Team Deportees, then we don't have that barrier. So there's mm. many more opportunities, I think, for, for, for learning different aspects of how, how the big picture works. Yeah, they don't have to, they kind of just can lean on some familiarity because, you know, they've, mm. they've already learned yeah. it. And that makes sense. Yeah, yeah for sure. Which brings up another topic, which is like something that we see a ton, and I think it came up in your book as well which is like the dreaded reorg. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how often our clients and customers are uh, going through a reorg or dealing with the aftermath of a reorg. And it seems like it's um, uh, it's just this strange cycle that's happening. And if you really look at high-performing teams, there's this constant like trust building and, and evolution that's happening. And all that gets really disrupted if you're constantly ripping people apart and reassembling them in weird ways. So I'm just kind of curious, like how reorgs have shown up in your work, and if you have any thoughts on how to avoid them. Yeah, for sure. And the reorg is often is driven by lots of different things, but often it's driven by a new leader comes in, wants to stamp her authority or his authority, or the organization tried out local autonomy and it didn't work. So now they're going back to centralized everything, but that's not going to work either because they're fundamentally missing some really important aspects of how organizations actually need to work and how work needs to flow and this kind of stuff. So you get these reorgs that are, by by the time the reorg is finished and the dust has settled, that particular leader has gone. The VP has disappeared or the CTO has gone. And I mean, I've seen this in person. I've I've lived through these. And it, it gets into this really, yeah, really toxic cycle and it affects retention and it affects hiring and all sorts of things. Maybe our, our hope is naive, right? We do have a hope, but maybe it's naive. 
that because Team Topologies has helped to introduce some much more fundamental principles and decision criteria for understanding how the organization should be shaped or can be shaped if you want to achieve fast flow, then the kind of reorgs that happened in the past that were driven by, you know, Ernst and Young, KPMG and McKinsey and whoever saying, oh, try this, try that, try the other. Well, those kind of reorgs don't make sense unless you're doing it with a very particular intent, unless it's aware of Conway's law, for example, this socio-technical mirroring that occurs between the communication path in the organization and the, the likely architecture of the thing that you're working on, thing that you're building. If it's not aware of those things, then people can call it out and say, this is nonsense. Why are you doing this? You are, you're, you're, this is going to work against what we need to do. So we're hoping, well, it's a bit early days yet, but we're hoping that Teams Bodies provides people with the language and the, the, the insight to question and challenge a random reorganization that's just coming from uh, for, for, for no particular useful reason. We'll see. Well, I certainly hope that's the case because many organizations would do much better <laughs> if they could avoid such things. Yeah. I mean, for, for fundamentally, Teams Bodies, is, our aim is to try and help people be more intentional about the work that they're doing, about the way the work is structured, where the teams interact, more intentional in general. And it's that intentionality which, which you know, hopefully produces some better results for organizations. Yeah. You mentioned domain-driven design a little bit earlier, and I wanted to throw this out because I know a lot of facilitators listen to the show, and this would be an area that uh, they might not know much about and could be a, another tool from the research for the tool belt. And I think there are two specific things you called out in the book. One was event storming, and the other was context mapping. So I wonder if you could just share a little light for those who haven't heard about those things and, and how they might even just start playing around with those tools. Uh, sure. So a bit of history first, I guess. Domain design sort of emerged from uh, a book in, I think, published in 2003, 2004 by Eric Evans. Now, if you think about it, back in 2003, 2004, we didn't have cloud infrastructure at all. The way in which software was, was, was developed and shipped was still relatively slow at that point. Software was still being shipped on CD-ROMs and DVDs at that point, and so on and so on. So the the the, the context was was quite different from uh, from today. The interesting thing, of course, is that that now these ideas are now we're now able to apply them at speed. We're now able to use things like cloud computing to enable us to to take advantage of principles around kind of domain centric design and things and, and separation concerns. And use, uh, and we're not hampered by the the slow speed of change in in the kind of infrastructure space, which is great. It's 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 it's, it's a good place to be. Domain design is focused on the, the way I see it is it's focused on untangling concepts from at, a, at, a, at a kind of business level, business domain level. Domain design is really focused on language, the language that every, that people use every day to talk about the problems they're trying to solve. And it really zooms in to listen to and, and, and look at the language and, and find the different things that happen from the perspective of domain experts and, and, and other people. And fundamentally, if concepts in the organization are tangled up, if we, if we see concepts tangled together, meshed together, then the software that we're gonna, that we're going to write is also gonna be tangled and meshed together. So domain of design it look, is there trying to untangle these concepts precisely so that we can separate them out. And then 
what we apply on top of the traditional DDD concepts is ideas around fast flow. Because when we need to have very rapid flows of change, then we need to find boundaries that work for flow as well as work conceptually. So originally, the, the, a lot of the work was in DDD was, was, was more focused on the conceptual stuff because fast flow wasn't a thing. Like the software took a long time to, to ship. With fast flow possible and normal, based on principles like continuous delivery and, and automation and so on, we, we, when we're thinking about boundaries using techniques like uh, from, from DDD, we also need to think about what boundaries can actually work in a fast flow context. So there's a kind of additional thing going on there. But techniques like event storming, where we're trying to surface all the different things that happen, basically events, using domain experts and, and engineers together in a room, mapping that stuff out, which helps to find where the boundaries are. It helps to find where there's, a, there's ambiguity around the language. And actually, that helps us to find where the boundaries are. Mm. can really help. It, really, it, help, it helps to, to bridge what is sometimes a gap between, between if you like, engineering and, 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 and business, if you like, Pe people, who, people who either got the money or, the, or they, they, they've got the, the domain awareness. Now, we've, we've actually been looking at a, an, a, using additional technique called independent service heuristics. It's a bit of a mouthful, but if you search <laughs> for that, on on the on online, then you you'll find some details. It's inspired by by domain driven design and, and and uses some some similar techniques. And again, is a way to bring together people from from different disciplines to be able to co-create and co-agree, like to co-discuss what what would be good approaches to to domain boundaries and therefore good approaches to team boundaries and things. So you, you're actually getting people together to to evolve the organization, evolve the team responsibilities in a way which is viable, which deals with cognitive load and so on, and gets people bought in. And it becomes quite a really powerful kind of technique for for getting people involved and becoming awareness of uh, becoming aware of the kind of things they need to be looking out for. The go, going back to that sensing thing, helping people to sense the, what's needed inside the organisation. It, it's a it's a really interesting technique and powerful technique for for doing that. It's been nice to see that evolve over the last few years. Yeah, it's super cool. It's almost making me imagine a world where organisations have dedicated teams or identify folks to meet regularly, have these conversations to make sure they're kind of shepherding how the organization grows and evolves. Yeah, for sure. And the role, the traditional traditional role of, let's say, agile coach, valuable, for sure. But the traditional focus of an agile coach was inside a single team or in, inside multiple teams, right? And actually, we need to start to look outwards as well and to look at the relationships between teams and the capabilities that we've got in teams and things like boundaries for flow, this is also a role potentially for people who traditionally were managing aspects of, of, of work in an organization, whether it's software or whether it's something else. Instead of trying to manage dependencies, let's try and look instead for whether our boundaries are good for flow and whether we've got any blockers in place. If we can instead focus on removing blockers and finding good boundaries for flow, we don't need to manage the work so much. Mm. So it's almost like the, the, that's another example of where Fast flow needs to refocus existing skills and provides opportunities for people to, to do new stuff effectively, but to use their kind of existing skills, but in a different way. And yeah, so uh, for, for sure, we, we've seen examples with customers where, where the, the, the pool of the, the community of agile coaches was, was hugely effective in helping to spread these ideas around flow and boundaries and, and, and core team supporters' ideas and so on. 
um, I think there's a real there's a real opportunity, particularly for people with kind of this kind of coaching experience of of some description, but also managers to refocus their attention uh, and use their skills in a way which enables autonomy and flow and viable team and system boundaries effectively. Yeah, it makes me think of the to use the team topologies language. It makes me think about the enabling teams and mm. and how you know organizations are really good at erecting silos. <laughs> Yep. And there's huge opportunity for some group in the organization or individuals that float around and just bridge the silos in interesting ways. Say, oh, wait, let me plug this into that. Like, you need to hear about mm. this. And who's bouncing around like a little pinball figuring out, you know, where the gaps are? Yeah, for sure. And, and uh, in organizational design terminology, that's, that's called boundary spanning. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyone listening who, who who gets OD, then you'll recognize the need for boundary spanners and, and the value that they bring. And, and the enabling team in Teams Properties is effectively a boundary spanning role. Because yeah. we're working across multiple teams. We're not building anything ourselves. We're, 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 the interactions are temporary. We're detecting a bunch of stuff that's happening across loads of teams. And we can then have a conversation with the right people saying, this is a problem. Or we don't we don't have enough skills of that type across all of these teams. Or something similar. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we're running short on time, so I want to make sure to leave you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. I think the the the, the thing I would suggest is is to think about ways in which you can what the implications will be of uh, limiting team cognitive load in in teams that you've got. Like, what would the implication be? What would the implication be of having? end-to-end responsibility for a particular service. That's quite a responsibility, and needs, needs, you might need to know a lot of stuff. So what, what would you need to make that true? And what would you need in order to have no handoffs at all from, from start to finish of, of, of working on a service? So no waiting for another team to do something, because the, these, these are things which really enable fast flow. Fast flow, effectively, in this context, ultimately enables real business agility, the ability to switch around and change things and, and adapt to these, these increasing kind of changes and threats from, from, the out, from the outside world. So really think about those kind of concepts and what would be needed to, to achieve, achieve those kind of things, like no handoffs, no waiting for another team during, during the period where we're, we're, where we're building something or we're making some changes, but also then the need to think about limiting cognitive load. And I mean... The, the the secret basically is is in the team's body's book. You'll 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 find some suggestions for what that looks like, but it could be interesting to start from those kind of those kind of principles and then sort of work backwards. If you work backwards from those principles, you effectively do what we did, and the team's body stuff emerges from there, or something like it will emerge from from those first principles. Amazing. Well, thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure chatting, and I uh, hope to chat you with you again soon. Fab. Thank you, Douglas. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com.